We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He turns. He fires for the win. He's got the bucket at the buzzer. Weather back to Bibby. Has the open shot. Ladies and gentlemen, up on those feet, put those hands together. And we'll meet tonight starting five for your Sacramento Kings. Welcome to the Kings Beat Podcast. I am James Ham, your Kings Insider for ESPN 1320 and the founder of the Kings Beat. Joining me, Mr. Brendan Nunez from the Kings Pulse Podcast and the Kings Herald. What's up, Brendan? Not too much, James. Another day in the life, I guess. Another day in the life. And, of course, Fox 40s, <laughs> Sean Cunningham. Like, we can have some fun with that, Sean. I like it. I like I it. I feel like, yeah, I feel like if there's a Fox 40, there needs to be, like, some kind of sounder, you know, or, like, a big, like, a, what, what kind of fox. noise does a fox make? I don't. I remember that song. What, what does, does the fox, the fox say? say? That yeah. was yeah. awful, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that was awful. I think so now terrible. we need to tie it into the song. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to like have uh, like an intro noise for you. That makes sense. <laughs> Production <laughs> value. We're not live this time. This is. Uh, I, I got so spoiled from that live uh, podcast we did the other night that I was like, already searching for the comments and i'm like no idiot we're not live so now i can't find these comments that amuse the hell out of me that's funny we could go live we could do more live shows um and we might start doing that um it's just about like production value and and all that stuff like it and sometimes there are moments where we have internet failures and we've got to go back and editing and chop them up and um and you would just be sitting there watching a live stream that goes blank for like three (laughs) minutes while while james's internet reboots um, okay, so uh, we've got tons to discuss today, uh, but we're going to start with the topic of the day, which is Brendan has started watching oh. There's Something About Mary. Homework assignments were due, and Brendan came and delivered. Brendan, no. your thoughts on the Farrelly Brothers classic, There's Something About Mary? Yeah, I'm about halfway through, pretty close what? to exactly halfway. What do you mean halfway? Blasphemy. It's- this yeah. is not a freaking Netflix series, Brendan. This is I, an hour and a half movie. I was told I it's a two hour movie. I was told I wouldn't fall asleep. I did fall asleep. Oh. I'm not gonna lie. Um, and then started watching it again today, trying to get caught up before this recording. But my dog well, needs to be walked. Okay, and... when's the last time you sat through a full movie? 
Maybe we need to explore that. Um, I watched The Town the other day and watched the whole Good thing. Oh, the whole thing? The whole that's thing. Lo- that's longer than uh, something about Mary. No, I might have watched two different parts, actually. Oh, my. Typically, I throw something on, and I'm, like, notorious for falling asleep. When you go, When movies. you go to a movie, do you just, like walk out randomly and go you know what i'll catch the other half for another 12 bucks at another time yeah i have not gone to a movie in a long time i went to spider-man when it came out and instantly realized that i was not caught up enough to be watching that one um but oh no that one that one's difficult because if you don't know all of the the things that have happened beforehand you're in some trouble you're in some trouble. yeah you have to know everybody's cousins and family trees it's way too complicated for me Okay, um, something about have... Mary was pretty funny though. But you, but you put it down like a book. No, I literally was watching <laughs> it right before we hit this recording too. I just have other things going on. It's all like I am watching it. But this I is normal asleep. behavior. This is normal behavior where you will stop movie yes. watching it and watch it in segments. Yes, what? like I'm obsessed with Ozark right now. And I don't know how often I know it's different types of watching, but I fall asleep mid episode all the time. I'm always because I watch things at night and I'm always just falling asleep in the middle of it. I blew through the first half of Ozark in one day and the second half of Ozark the day it came out like instantly. That's how I roll. I now question how it is you can stay awake while watching an NBA basketball game, like watching NBA basketball. Sacramento Kings. Yeah, especially the Kings. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) We look over and he's sleeping. We're like, what is happening? Yeah. He's just got narcolepsy and he's just out. Watch the second half tomorrow. Yeah, this could have something to do with the (laughs) fact that, that of course, Brendan is of an age where his attention span is like a gnat. Uh, you know, like it, you're raised in like, no. the Twitter Twitter universe. I, I hear that argument, James. But honestly, like <laughs> uh, we're talking about a freaking movie, my guy. Like you can. This podcast and... is about to be as long as the movie. That's yeah. Right. How do That's you make right. it through these podcasts? <laughs> we're gonna be like it's because the dog plays with a toy and it instantly wakes up Brendan. Okay, so I, I just to be honest with you, I watched the first half of the movie as well uh, in the last <laughs> in the last forty eight hours. Like, what is Kutcher? What was the funniest part so far? Um, probably when he pretends the the PI pretends that Mary is a mail order bride, going oh. over to uh, Japan, okay. I believe it is. And oh, and they they talks uh, he talks her up as if she's pretty big, and they pay by the pound over there. They pay by the pound, like <laughs> like, tuna, the, like tuna, like <laughs> tuna. That's the best part. Like, like the the zipper scene didn't get you. The, the zipper scene was was funny, especially when just more and more people start coming in the room. <laughs> That's what really got me. The guy crawls through the window. Um, oh, the beans. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a pretty good one. It was a pretty good one. Okay. I also I say, did I get just... to the eight second abs or eight minute abs, seven minute abs, six minute abs. That was a pretty good scene. That was Shout the last thing I saw right before I finished. Pretty Shout much. out Harlan Williams. Um, but can I just point out too, if anybody's yeah, this is a very funny movie, and if no one's seen it, please see it. But there are a watch lot it of in two that, halves, though. No, don't do that garbage. That's absolute nonsense. <laughs> but I will say there are a lot of things that don't age well as there are in a lot of movies. So just, just putting that little blanket out there just because there are moments in that movie that you just kind of cringe at today. Yeah. But nevertheless, yeah. it is a funny, funny movie. Yeah. All right, let's get on to actual uh, basketball. Or, you know, we'll, we'll start with the business side. If you're watching on YouTube, um, we picked up a ton of subscribers doing a live show. 
So that was spectacular. So if you are watching right now on YouTube, go down below, subscribe, and give us a thumbs up. Uh, yeah. The last the last pod, uh, we had uh, over 300 likes, 300 thumbs ups. Uh, wow. So, yeah, that's pretty stunning. That's good. That is good. Uh, that was excellent. Um, outside of that, make sure you're following the King's Beat. Uh, give us a subscription. Um, and premium subscribers to the King's Beat. I will make the announcement right now. May 26th from 5.30 to 7.30 is off the record with the King's Beat Virtual Happy Hour Part 6, The Voice. The, oh, that makes me happy. I know. Legendary King's announcer gary gerald will join the show and hang out with us while we get drunk and he of course does not um because he doesn't partake in the alcohol really um but uh we he will goes straight, all... to <laughs> straight to heroin <yeah. laughs> <Black Jesus. are> <laughs> you just said that about gary gerald how oh. disrespectful sean cunningham <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Gary Gerald is going to join the happy hour. That, of course, is only for premium subscribers to the King's Beat. So jump on board now so you can get the invite for the uh, virtual happy hour where we will zoom this thing up and the uh, incredible Gary Gerald will join the show and we will have a really good time. Of course, what? it's off the record. We don't record it. Yeah. All that what's, stuff. That, what's that date again? <laughs> May 26th from 530 to 730. I know, it's we're a, just finding out about this, Sean. I wrote it it's, down, too. It's next Thursday. <laughs> That's right. It's next Bottle Thursday. Rock. I'm going to be good and lubed. Let's go. Oh, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Um, all right. Outside of that, we, we do have actual basketball news. Um, the Sacramento Kings have hired an associate head coach uh, under, under Mike Brown. And uh, for today's um, sort of, like, profile, the coaching profile, uh, Brendan, let's turn it over to you. What do you got for us? Yeah, Jordy Fernandez is a guy that's uh, worked pretty closely with Mike Brown for a while now. Their relationship is is definitely interesting. And, and just on Fernandez himself, he spent seven years as a player development coach with the Cavs before he joined Mike Malone in Denver as an assistant from 2016 until this most recent season where he'll now be joining the Kings. But originally, uh, Jordy Fernandez was a counselor at Impact Sports and in two, the summer of '09. Uh, kind of ran into Mike Brown where he was coaching Mike Brown's son Elijah at a, a camp and Brent, Mike Brown was kind of impressed with what he saw and pretty much quickly made an offer to him that was for a furnished apartment 500 bucks a month and the ability to drive his Range Rover that Fernandez could leave Spain where he was working towards a doctorate's degree um, and be Elijah, his son's personal coach and the coach for his AAU team, and also kind of function as Mike Brown's personal assistant. And um, did that for about a year. And because of that, Mike Brown was at the time the head coach of the Cleveland Cavs. And Fernandez was kind of around Brown at the facility. And um, story goes at one point that Jordy Fernandez was working out um, one of Cleveland's draft prospects they were considering, and I forget what general manager it was at the time, kind of came into Mike Brown, and, and Mike Brown said he was expecting to kind of get a, what the hell is this guy doing? Why is he working out our players? But instead it was more of a, this guy really knows what he's doing. I think we should bring him on to the staff. And Jordy Fernandez ended up doing that. Mike Brown funnily kind of said, uh, I didn't have to pay him anymore, so of course I'm going to put him on Cleveland's payroll. And uh, then 
Jordy Fernandez ends up sticking around in Cleveland even longer than Mike Brown did. But Jordy Fernandez was there both times that Mike Brown was a head coach in Cleveland. And like I said, was under Mike Malone in Denver since 2016, all the way until this most recent season. And now he'll be joining Mike Brown on the Kings. But interesting ties. Definitely a close relationship. Yeah, he's also uh, part of the coaching staff on the Nigerian national team with Mike Brown, right? So that's also the tie that binds. Um, Sean, what do you got? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, it was 2020 during the uh, Summer Olympics, and uh, I actually was down in Oakland covering a good portion of um, the Nigerian team because there's there was a ton of players before they really whittled it down to the Olympic roster that were from the Sacramento area. Um, obviously, Chimezi Metu made the team, but you had guys like Gabe Vincent and uh, uh, Ike Iroegbu, who's from Elk Grove, um, um, you've got, you know, Chima Moneki from who from who played at UC Davis. So you have all these guys. Uh, I think of like the entire roster, and if you remember, they had also just beaten the U.S. team in the scrimmage, uh, and in Vegas, I think it was in Vegas. But they had just come back to Oakland after beating uh, the U.S. And you have, I mean, you think of Nigeria, all these people in the country, right? And you have so many of them. There was like five or six of them that had come from the Northern California area or had ties to this. I mean, Festus Azili was kind of a part of it, guy who had went to Yuba City High School, played with the Warriors, you know, lives in Sacramento, has family in Sacramento, um, Jesuit High School before that. It's just, it was interesting to see, and Mike Brown was the coach of that, and that was one of the first times I'd actually been around Jordy, and I remember told, telling him at a time because Matthew Delavadova would just sing his praises, you know, talking about player development and uh, – how much Jordy who came from impact because I remember being uh, when, when summer league was a little bit different than what it is now in Vegas uh, you could just wander into impact and you know, you'd have a Kings player working out there or any other NBA player working out there. And it was just kind of a way to just kind of set up and see if there's a way to, to talk to some of these people or kind of get some insight. Um, so my, my connects at impact, I'd never, I didn't know Jordy at the time, but it was a kind of an open door. Just come on in. And uh, much like a lot of these gyms or UFC gyms for mixed martial arts. So um, it was very inviting. The culture was great there. And that was during that time. Now, I didn't I didn't know Jordy then. I didn't meet Jordy until later in the NBA, but had a moment with him with the Nigerian team. And, and of course, all these guys that um, I've come in contact with speak highly of him. And as a matter of fact, yesterday, uh, I can share this. Um, actually spoke with Mike Brown for a little while um, after the game in, in San Francisco. Um, and congratulated him on the job, all that stuff, and uh, immediately started talking about Jordy and just singing his praises. Um, while I didn't ask Mike, hey, who else are you going to have on your on your staff? I just didn't think it would be appropriate given the setting. Um, he says he told me, he says, man, I've got a really good crew coming in, and it sounded like it was pretty much final. So um, be nice to hear some some other names trickle out. I think they'll probably do it in one fell swoop. Uh, after the season, but I think they wanted to make this Jordy hire different because this will be his associate head coach. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing what the roster looks like of the of the coaching staff for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we get the 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 associate head coach is hired now, and I think the the important part about that is he can start establishing what's happening behind the scenes here in Sacramento while Mike Brown is continuing to go on in the playoffs. So, I think that that's a, a nice way to like look at this that 
you know, of course, the Cavs season, I mean, the, the Nuggets season is over. Uh, so he's free to move about the country. And I assume that he's going to like set up home base quickly and start moving through things and start developing um, a plan here for, you know, player workouts and start managing uh, the, the team workouts as players come through. Um, to my knowledge, uh, as of, again, yesterday, assistant coaches, current assistant coaches have not been told one way or another whether they'll be back or not. I have no idea. Um, and that goes for any of them that, I, that I've been able to talk to. Um, so I, I'm going to guess that most of them will not be back, but there might be one or two holdovers. We'll have to see how that goes. Uh, but, you know, I think Mike Brown should be able to hire his own staff, and that's something that I always preach. Uh, it's something that is written in almost every coaching contract outside of one or two that, you know, can, you can say, hey, look, this has been a, a person who's been around the franchise for a while, or, you know, this has been a person who's done this, this, and this, and can you at least, like, consider bringing them on the staff? So I, I think we're in for, like, an interesting couple of days here or a couple of weeks while we figure out what's going to happen to the remaining uh, Sacramento Kings staff. Um, uh, Jody Fernandez is he the de- he was a defensive coach in in Denver, right? I know he had worked on the he was part of that. I know Michael has his blueprint all over that. I mean, if you remember going back to, um, you know, Michael being this defensive coach, I think Jordy was somebody that Michael uh, gave freedom to try to teach the the defensive system uh, and take ownership of while Michael has his, you know, attention drawn in so many different places. So I think just by default, but it was clear, I think it's pretty clear that that's a Michael system. Um, but that will be interesting because, you know, you, you go for a guy who, who doesn't really have maybe, I think if he's to hang his hat on one thing, it's definitely player development, but, um, certainly filling the roles of, okay, we're going to come over here and call out, or if Michael has something in film room that needs to be emphasized, Jordy's going to be the one to do it individually with players and in as, as a group as well when they're going over strategy. So I know he took ownership of the role, but it, it's definitely a Michael system. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because um, you look at what Denver does, and to be honest, I, like it's the reason why I liked you know looking, maybe kicking the tires on David Adelman um, because you know they they have a system centered around a big man, and I, so I really do think that like in the modern NBA, you know you're going to have a lot of sets that that you can throw anybody into, but when you have somebody who's been around and sat there and game planned you know time and time again around a specific type of player it's it's probably good to bring in a coach that you know when you have a similar type of player so uh, of course Jokic and Sabonis being similar types not the same but similar and I, I think they're uh the fact that you can run offenses through them um the fact that they you know they block shots but they aren't like true natural shot blocker or rim protectors uh you're you're talking more about uh like defensive players. Uh, well, I'll even say this, like Jokic's like improvement on the defensive end is stunning. Like what they've been able to do there with Jokic is, is nuts. I mean, he's, he's a player that you don't think of as a defensive player because he's so good offensively, but he is really good defensively. And so uh, it, it's about, you know, playing to players strengths and stuff like that. And I, I think that that's, it's sort of what we're seeing from Brown and from this hire. Right. So, you look at the Golden State Warriors. How in the world do the the Golden State Warriors finish with the number one defensive rating in the NBA? 
when you've got Steph Curry, who's never been known as a great defender. He's a def- he, he can defend, but he's not a quote-unquote great defender. You got Clay Thompson, who's coming back after missing more than 900 days. You've got no natural shot blocker. Uh, Draymond Green missed a huge portion of the season. Um, and sure enough, here they are, you know, scheming their way to a, a top defensive rating. So I do like that because, let's be honest, the Kings are the worst of the worst of the worst when it comes to defense. So I think that this is a good hire. It makes a lot of sense. I want to see who else is brought in because we do need to see some offensive creativity and stuff like that. And I, I think that that's uh, an important piece to this. And, you know, that's where we go next, right? Who do they bring in to really run the offense on this team? Absolutely. I think the things you point out of Denver and Golden State kind of overperforming defensively for their personnel is something that obviously helped translate to Sacramento. And the Jokic comparison for Sabonis is intriguing as well. You know, um, I do want to kind of go back and look at a little bit more of Denver games and kind of how they schemed that. Because again, it's while Jokic does have size on Sabonis when it comes to height and length, they both are not athletic in a typical speed way Um, they don't have great movement and still totally able to make everything work there and even offensively obviously there's what Jokic does and Sabonis kind of falls into a bit of the same when it comes to running offense through a big but you can also say the same with Golden State with running offense through Draymond Green um, and just running offense through a big so coming from two systems both Jordy Fernandez and Mike Brown that I think have translatable things to what Sacramento's roster currently is, is, is intriguing and promising to me. Plus I I think it's good. Like uh, again, being a player development guy, um, this, this franchise needs sort of a base. Um, You know, they, they really do need like someone has to set up like a game plan for development, especially when you have the number four pick in the draft and you got two second-round picks. The development has not been there. Robert Woodard did not develop. Uh, Jemias Ramsey did not develop. And it's not that those guys are expected to be roster players, but you can't miss almost every single time in the second round. You know, at some point, you have to develop somebody. And, you know, like the the best player the Kings have drafted, like one of their, their best draft picks that they've had in the last, say, 10 years is Gary Trent Jr., who they— just traded sold to gave uh, him away. they gave to, him away they gave him away to portland for no reason uh, i mean i think they got a another second round pick down the road but it didn't work out and xavier like, tillman is in there too oh yeah, yeah. good one yeah. for memphis yeah yeah these guys that the the kings just flat out missed on that were there and that they even had their hands on and so you need somebody to establish what it is to 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 get better and to uh you know, a path for a player to improve. And and I'll even say this, you can go get yourself like some of these young players and that that are restricted free agents or 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 non-restricted free agents. Let's just talk about like the Martin twins. I think like if the Kings landed both Martin twins this offseason, they would be a better a better team. None of them are going to they're they're not going to average 20 points a game. They're not going to blow you away. What they're going to do is they're going to be gritty. They're going to play defense. They're going to pass the ball. One of them shot, I think it's 38.4% from 3. One of them shot 41.4% from 3. It's kind of what you need, these utility players, right? But if you bring those guys in and you got a guy coming from the Miami Heat, uh, you know, school of thought and who's being, 
you know, brought up in a system and really developed, if you just stop development and just expect him to continue to be the player or to get better and not regress, then you're making a big mistake. And that's where the Kings continuously do this. Like, why do players look better somewhere else than they do in Sacramento? Well, a lot of it is development. A lot of them is putting them in the position to succeed. So I'm, I'm really hoping that that's what Jordy Fernandez and what sort of the path that we're heading down, it's about bringing players in that you can develop, continue to develop, and actually make them viable and be NBA players down the road. You know, the one thing I felt, felt like they've done a better job in over the past couple seasons and it was sorely needed and we've talked about it James at length but it's just adding professionals like professionals in basketball IQ you know what I mean like that's why we always talk about like young teams typically don't win um, and young teams typically don't uh, have the the degree of success coming in because they don't know any better but sometimes you can use that to your benefit I suppose but really it comes down to me of just professional basketball and I think it you know I, I remember talking to, I used to have a when it comes especially when it came to the draft I used to have this small school bias where you know I wouldn't it's like man why did that guy go to Weber State you know if he's so good why did he go to Weber State if, he, if he's so good why is he at Davidson or Western Carolina or something like that again there's there's so many moments that you can point to and the, the, of sh- that shows that people can go to these programs and excel in the NBA even still and still be even sa- even someone like Kawhi Leonard, San Diego State, not this like basketball powerhouse, right? So you learn from your mistakes with that. But I also feel in doing so, much like staying in college a little bit longer, it seasons you. Uh, you, you, you get to know a program better you, and, it, and it translates better to the NBA because you learn systems and you learn how – to adapt and and it's not this everything's flying at you and you're just going off of raw natural talent and no matter what happens you're going to be taken care of when you get to the nba because you know you've been heralded for so long so um that's why something like memphis if you look around like you know john morant famously went to murray state for a reason you know so uh, somebody who extends like desmond bain you're talking about programs that are that are not the most not the ones that leap off the page when it comes to basketball in general, in terms of being these like these blue bloods or these powerhouse conferences or powerhouse teams. So uh, I think there's a little bit something to that. And um, I I think we're kind of seeing this shift in the NBA, not so much that they're going to avoid the Dukes, Kentuckys and and North Carolinas and things like that, but that you're kind of, you know, you you better be really good. You better have like a huge high ceiling if you're going to draft somebody so, so short or so small uh, from a smaller school and so high and give them the time to, to really kind of grow. And you hope you have a culture that can, that can give them the time necessary. Yeah. And I would point out too, that, uh, one of the biggest issues that you have in, in the NBA is that players come into teams that are bad teams, you know, like high draft picks go to bad teams and it's really hard to like, to tell somebody like, look, this, I need you to do this, this, and this. You're not going to be Michael Jordan. You're going to be a really, really good, solid role player, and I need you to work on that. And it's something that I think for years the Kings have struggled with because they're always a bad team. And when you get to a bad team, you think, oh, okay, well, they're bad. I can probably do more here than I can somewhere else. Like, I'm not going to be painted into a corner. I'm not going to be put in a box 
And so, again, like seven years into his career, Jason Thompson was still asking, like, when am I going to get to, like, shoot 12 times a game? Like, I should be shooting 12 times a game. And the answer is, like, Jason Thompson, you're never shooting 12 times a game. You're not shooting 12 times a game in Turkey or China. You're, that's not who you should be. But because you're a bad team, you're not able to establish sort of, like, a hierarchy a lot of times because everyone is mediocre and you're not very good. And so you have this problem that guys get deep into their careers and still have this weird belief that they can be someone better than what they really should be and who don't focus on being really good the way that they should be at what just what they do. You know, like, let's let's improve you a little bit on your ball handling, but I really need you to be a rebounder and a shot blocker. Those are your roles. Now, if I can stretch you out and shoot it and have you start shooting threes, that's great. Now I can add that element to your game. But this is like player development over years. And the Kings just don't have this. It's something that's been missing from this team for a long time. And and it's not intentional. But at the same time, this is where I think they have to get it right, especially when you have a a, a pick like so high uh, um, in the draft. And, and you know, you you still have all your picks. And you need to develop players the right way. But, you know, it sometimes it's good to go out and get role players. But... You get role players who instantly come in like, I want to be more than what I am here because I'm on the Kings. I'm no longer on the Bucks, where I'm the fifth guy in the starting lineup. I'm now on the Kings where, uh, number one, I should be a starter. But number two, uh, I should be a really good starter. I should be able to do more than what I was able to do as a fifth starter for the Bucks. I should be a third starter here because this team isn't very good. And so I think it's really hard to define roles when you're a team like the Kings and a franchise like the Kings that continue to struggle. Yeah, I think Dante's a great example, like you just pointed out. I think of like Jeremy Grant, too, had other reasons for going to Detroit as well, outside of just roster and an increased role. But when he goes to a team like that from place like he was at in Denver, it's like, okay, this is an opportunity to expand my game on a lesser roster, pretty much, um, and show that I can do a little bit more. And I think sometimes that that pays off and guys show that they do have that ability to add more to their game than maybe they were allowed in different places. But it's about picking your moments to do that and not stepping on other people's toes and, and going out there and just kind of being fully focused on yourself. And I think it kind of all circles back to the idea of a culture that Sacramento hasn't really had at least a positive culture established for the past decade plus outside of maybe one or two teams here and there that didn't stick around. So I think that um, it kind of all circles back around to that and being willing to fall into your role is so much easier when you're actually seeing the value of that role because wins are coming in. When you're winning 30 games, it's, it's easy to say, okay, this is the area that teams need to be better at. If I was just allowed to do a little bit more, then I could help with that. And sometimes people do a little bit too much. So I think it kind of all circles back to culture. Culture, and I would even say it's consistency. Because, you know, if you're sitting there busting your tail for Dave Yeager's staff, and they're asking you to do X, Y, and Z, and then Dave Yeager loses his job, and you got Luke Walton, who no longer wants you to do X, Y, and Z. He wants you to do A, B, and C. Now you've just wasted time. Like, that's the continuity of, of a franchise is a problem. Um, building off of something and having someone like start at one point and know that they're going to be under the same head coach for the same system 
for a certain amount of time and they can start to become experts in that system. Like De'Aaron Fox, for example. I mean, this is going to be his, I mean, fourth head coach and year six. And that's not easy, especially when you're supposed to be the star of the team. It's like, this is who we want you to be. But then, hey, this other guy wants you to be something a little bit different. And there's no, like, clear path. It's it's not like when you go to college and your freshman year, you got to take these courses. Your sophomore year, you got to take these courses. And you go into upper division. And then your senior year, you got to make sure you finish. And all of a sudden, you, you should have somewhat of a finished product. And then if you're going to go to grad school and get better and stuff, like, there is no system in place to show consistent growth and for, for these guys to actually know where they need to be from year one to year seven and what is expected because the expectations consistently change. The only thing consistent in Sacramento is inconsistency. Yeah, well, and to that point, too, I mean, you look at – you have a new head coach coming in, and, and you mentioned De'Aaron Fox. How about Davion Mitchell? I mean, he's now got his third head coach, and he's not even into his – uh into his sophomore season in the NBA, but uh, you're right, James. I mean, look, that's just sports. I mean, you think about it in football, it's actually worse in football. You know, if you're a quarterback or a, or a, or a, a receiver, running back, whatever, maybe you go from a running team to all of a sudden personnel changes, coaching changes, and now you're trying to do something different. Uh, it, it's so tough. And, and make no mistake, Mike Brown is coming in, he's going to do stuff that's vastly different than what Luke Walton did and probably a lot different than what um, uh, even Alvin Gentry. So what player becomes a victim of that? And I'll just, you know, just throw one out there, Terrence Davis. Terrence Davis might find himself out of a rotation, possibly. You know, someone like Rashawn Holmes, depending upon how they depend, depending on how the roster looks, especially with the addition of Sabonis, you already saw him coming off the bench. Um, you know, his role could dramatically look different depending upon what they do. So, um, and they may, they may ask him to do different things. You, you know, I, I, they may tell him, you know, we don't want you to set a high screen anymore. We want you to be on the block. We want you to be on the, you know, patrol the baseline as opposed to come out to the height, to the high post. So I don't know. I, there's a lot of different variables that come into play, but, that's where the whole professionalism comes in. These guys need to, you know, you, you bring in people who are able to adapt to different programs that just don't succeed in one specific type of program, be it high paced or, you know, stand in the corner or run a Princeton offense, whatever it may be. You know, you, you hope that they're able to flourish in different systems. So that's up to the coaching staff, but it's not going to be, it's going to be the same thing where you're going to have people come in and, and, and you will have a different mindset and a different philosophy and it can, and it definitely can affect players. Yeah. I mean, I think this is like the fourth or f mm, I want to say fifth different defensive coach in the last five years, maybe not even five years, probably less than that. Right. I mean, it, it's crazy. You can, ha you can have the defensive coach. You need defensive players or people who are willing to do it to go with it. So, Well, that – and I mean, again, I think consistent messaging and building off of the next year, that, that does actually help. Like yeah. continuity does actually help. And so you, you hope that, uh, that you haven't ruined some of these guys by, like, giving them so many muddy, you know, muddled messages that at the end of the day they, you know, they think they know what you want, but – and it might be similar to what some other coach wanted, but maybe it's totally different. And, you know, and, and you know, it's not just the Kings because DeMontis Sabonis is coming to the team with like, he's played for so many head coaches. It's crazy. I think he's played for five. 
and and it's he's maybe this will be his sixth and so bouncing around the league too like that doesn't help you but then again sometimes it does i mean it, it does like i think we had these conversations with uh justin holiday who had like been traded mid-season like multiple times and so he actually knows like okay i just go out, i gotta go out here and learn the basics and then i'm ready to go but that's a player who's used to it and i guess maybe if you are fox and sabonis you have gotten used to it but i also think that you can like maybe not play to a hundred percent of your of your talent level because there's always the excuse that you didn't really have like a straight line of education and so yeah i think it's it's going to be interesting it's uh again jordy fernandez for me is a is a good first step um like brendan i think we are we're all slightly disappointed that like none of the young guys made it to the second round so the the will hardy's darvin hams uh, you know um charles lee is this does this make you feel a little bit better that they got mike brown but then they went out and got one of these young up-and-coming guys yeah, and Fernandez was kind of considered for Cleveland's opening um, when when it was available a couple of years ago, and I don't know how far he got in those conversations or anything, but I think it's interesting because I think I really started to be intrigued by the young coaching candidates, partially because, like, well, they could be phenomenal coaches, and we kind of know with these other ones and experience that they're probably not amazing with Mike Brown maybe being the exception, right, in the six years previously that he's just spent with Golden State. Um, so, yeah, it is intriguing to me. I mean, I think that Mike Brown can have his own longevity and be head coach for a long time if things do work out. He, he's still fairly young. So I, I think there is an intrigue with, with Jordy Fernandez being on the younger side that, like, maybe he – is next up if Mike Brown decides to eventually move on down the line for whatever sort of reason. Um, it's intriguing to me, but I, I think that a lot of my reasons that I was kind of advocating for one of the younger candidates previously was just like, well, they could be amazing. And we know that the other ones, the other candidates of like Steve Clifford um, and Mark Jackson, like probably are not based on having a previous track record that we've already been able to see. And maybe Mike Brown can be a, a phenomenal coach with what he's shown in the past. And we've never seen him work with this type of roster and having the six years, like I said, with Golden State. So it doesn't uh, at this point, I've kind of already accepted, I guess, that it's not one of the younger coaches uh, at the top. But I, I guess having a head assistant that's on the younger side it is nice. You know what it is? I, I, I see this because there's so many people that that. I think they love the intrigue of a younger coach because it's like, how can I, it's like opening a Christmas present, right? You don't know what's inside. It could be really fucking good. It could be really bad. Who knows? But you, you, you're hoping you're not getting socks, right? And I think there's people that know that at the end of the day, you've got a box, like, you know, you already know what Mike Brown is. And again, I'll remind people like, the the reason I look at the seven and said, yeah, Mike Brown's that's the guy I'd go with, you know, I, I think he gets, I think he gets a pretty bad rap. You know, I'm not trying to be this Mike Brown apologist, but it's like his successes aren't, it's like, Oh, well you, you coach LeBron James, right? It, it like, it, like he had nothing to do with that. Um, I mean, you look and at Larry Hughes teams. was his second best player. 
Yeah, I mean, and then everyone famously remembers the Lakers thing. It like the first year was okay. It went fine. I think Kings. I think Kings fans would love a, a forty team, forty win team at that point. They that you know, um, Kobe gives them that look in the second season. He's gone, and they go in a different direction. So yeah, you've got. I think the pressure of of coaching an absolute not just a superstar player, but a generational superstar like Kobe Bryant and LeBron James brings a pressure that is crazy. It, like, especially when you are an OCD system uh, type of coach, where you're bringing so many details to everything, uh, as Mike Brown does, and and that and he knows that can be that can be a t- those that can be a tough thing for for some of these superstars, um, especially when they're used to something different, you know, Kobe come famously coming from a Phil Jackson type of, uh, system where, you know, things are obviously a little bit different. Um, but again, you're talking about a guy who's won over 50 games, 50 or more games several times in his career. And he's only has two seasons where there were lot where they're losing records. And one of them, it's a one in five record. So, um, it, 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 I think because people look at that and they know, well, we've seen Mike Brown didn't win a championship. We've seen the likes of Steve Clifford. Eh, we've seen the unbottled, the bottled potential of hope and just hope of, well, we haven't seen what this guy can do as a head coach. Let's see. It could be entirely worse. And, but people will look at that potential much like a draft prospect, James, because you really haven't seen it in the NBA level. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you've this. This could be something. Why not take a shot at this when that can just as easily blow up in your face? Yeah, I mean, I can't I, believe I said the f word too. By the way, that's a, he, that was a slip. He drops an f bomb. <laughs> uh, we'll have to like mark to check. How the dare check you? Mark. Yeah, yeah. Usually, it's just not shot. <laughs> I got a little too comfortable. You got a little too comfortable. Okay, so I'm gonna add this this last piece to this, and we'll kind of scoot on. Um, I also liked it. That Jordy Fernandez is like he's the Mike Brown coaching tree. Like most of these other guys, like you know, we can we can trace all these coaching trees to different people. This is a guy that Mike Brown found. He's a guy that worked under Mike Brown for a long time. That went on to go work under another head coach and and Michael Malone and earn his keep there and earn his way up through the system. Learn something new from different people learn from guys again like Michael Malone but also from David Adelman and from all the other coaches that have come through there with the Wes Unsel juniors all of those guys that have come through there in Denver so this is a guy that we talked about this with Luke Walton he was super uncomfortable with his group that first year and I think it hurt the team I think it hurt their ability to win games um, just there was no flow no feel for each other and uh, versus the Dave Yeager or, again, the George Carl, which was even more different. That was more of a bunch of, like, George Carl, like, follower guys. Um, like, all of these are different ways that you can build out a franchise, out a coaching staff. But for me, this what I like about it is this is someone that Mike Brown is going to be super comfortable with. And it's someone that will be his sounding board, his right-hand man. And so I, I think that that's good because – when you're a team that's starting over yet again, having one message, having that message come from, from the top, having that message disseminated through people he trusts, that's a huge, huge deal. And so I think this is a good hire. Um, you know, maybe we'll find out more about Jordy as time goes by. 
uh, about what type of coach he is and what kind of style and all that stuff. But for right now, I, I think it's, again, this is probably the first true limb of the, well, it's one of the first limbs of the uh, the Mike Brown coaching tree that we're seeing added. And, uh, and I think that's a good thing. I'll admit yeah. I, I'm a little surprised that he was the associate because I expected that associate head coach to have, or so that associate head coach to have actual some head coaching experience. So I do think it's bold. Um, that's not to say there won't be another, you know, member of the staff that has head coaching experience. So I applaud the the boldness of it. I, I'm, it did surprise me that he would be named the assist, the associate though. And Question. that it came out on Twitter. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, Brendan. Question for you guys when it comes to building out a coaching staff like this and what Mike Brown is, is currently doing, like the two things that stand out to me as what's important in that, that we've kind of already talked about is them having a pre-built relationship and a trust among themselves. And also just coming from various backgrounds, right? Looking at the game with maybe a little bit of a different eye and being able to piece everything kind of together. What are the other standout important things to you guys when it comes to building a coaching staff and the relationship that these guys should have among each other? Hmm. Um, you know, like I've seen so many different coaching staffs and like you have your guys that are climbers that are going to be head coaches. You have your guys that are strictly player development guys. You have your guys that, uh, you know, like there's always like, you know, like Ryan Bowen, like he's a guy that like, he's a good guy to have on your staff because he's kind of a glue guy. He's a guy that everyone likes. He's a guy that can work with, you know, different styles of players. Um, but at the same time, like this, this team needs, like they need a big man coach. Like, you know, somebody asked me, uh, yesterday on Twitter, like, should the Kings look at Hakeem Olajuwon to work with Sabonis so he can be more of a back to the basket guy. And I thought to myself, Oh no, that's crazy. But then, you know, again, Hakeem Olajuwon does actually work with players where he did. I remember when he worked with, uh, with Hassan Whiteside one summer. Hassan spent a whole season with him, a whole off season. I, that, I'm not sure that that was the season that Hassan picked up the, the force, the force step uh, post move. He was, was convinced travel. it wasn't a travel. He it, wanted it was, to show everyone. It was a travel. It was um, very much a travel. Yeah. Yeah. It was so like two travels. <laughs> <laughs> it might've been, it might've been three travels. Um, but like they're sure like even a guy like Demonis Sabonis who's you know 25 26 I think did he just turn 26 um uh, I think he did um but a guy like Sabonis who um you know not only has he been in the league and refining some of the things he does but he's also the son of an absolute basketball legend and so he does have like plenty of stuff in his bag but that doesn't mean he can't get better on his jump hooks it can't that he can't add an, another little wiggle to his post moves because I, I have watched him like in the post and thought, huh, that didn't look that smooth. So yeah, you need a good big man coach. You need a guy who, again, a guy like Doug who can tie people together in different ways and make people think about the game in, in different ways and break down um, players in a different way, but also have really good conversations off the court that keep people engaged and in the flow and what's happening. So I, I think there are so many different ways to build out a staff, but you know, again, we and we've seen it. I, I think having one or two former NBA players is a good thing. I think having one or two young guys who have brilliant minds and who are coming up in the game and learning it a different way, uh, guys like Jonah Hershkew, who like sees the game in a different way because he hasn't been brought up in it 
uh, where he's, you know, a player uh, like the whole time. And, and then, you know, all of his stuff is jaded by sort of the old school way of thinking of basketball. Like he's a guy who, who probably can use uh, analytics in a different way than an old school coach can. So, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of different ways to build a staff, but uh, you know, it's kind of an open, open book, right? You can, you, I mean, an open, like open way that you can do this. There's, there's so many different ways that you can do it. And, and I don't think there's a wrong way. And the only time I did think that there was a wrong way was the Luke Walton staff where he, he tried to do something different and, and got a bunch of people he didn't know. <laughs> and the Kurt Rambis thing with Michael Malone. Yeah. You know, I mean, these these things happen. And Brendan, I think what everything that James said is pretty spot on. I think that's kind of like the baseline. But more than anything, more than the, you know, more than what these coaches can bring to the team, experience, uh, former players, hungry, hungry assistants, you need everyone on the same page. That, yes. and, and everybody has to be not only on the same page, but they have to have every belief and uh confidence in the head coach like it, it, everything comes back to your head coach that's why head coaches hire people that they know and they've worked with and they're comfortable with and that's why you know every you can't have anybody usurping the head coach or trying to uh speak out of both sides of their mouths or um you know the whole if there's a player that doesn't like the the head coach, the, the there can't be this assistant that goes, "Hey man, I know, blah blah blah, we're gonna make this work." It's like, no man, the head coach, his his word is bond here. This is what we're doing. So, um, that more than anything, having that that confidence, having that 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 structure, almost like you've got your general, and then you have your you know your your captains, whatever the whatever the I'm not a military guy, so I don't really know the the lieutenants and all that thing. What what, what the power order is there but everybody just needs to ever to funnel back to the head coach to give him the ultimate authority and it be that voice and you are just another mouthpiece of your head coach now you can certainly have your own identity and be unique and and all that and you can have creativity but as important it is it is to support your head coach you also don't want a bunch of yes men around you so it's a really odd dynamic because you want people to challenge you as a head coach. You want people to make you better as a head coach. But at the end of the day, what the head coach says goes. And the head coach needs to be left alone. To be, He needs to work in conjunction with the front office and ownership. But he needs to be left alone to coach his team. So um, it, it, that's one thing I'm going to be very interested to see as this thing plays out with Mike Brown, who's known for such structure, discipline, and having these systems and having a lot of detail. Um, because... That is when you have a coach like that, you really have to be left alone, and it's going to take time. So, um, who knows if there's the patience? But certainly, they're going in this direction, and it's a different bit of a, it's a it's a little bit more akin to what Dave Yeager had. You know, Dave Yeager, I felt had a a brilliant system. Um, I I think he had a nice structure of guys that would help enable him as a head coach, but also he would delegate and guys had roles and uh, he did a brilliant job of that. I mean, Steve Kerr told me one time, he says, everybody steals from Dave and it's not just his in-game coaching. It's not just his, it, I mean, it's so many different things that he brings to the table, uh, so many different systems, so many different ways of communication. Um, he obviously, you know, he likes to use the term love on his guys. Like he, 
he tries to give them and, and hype them up a lot, and he doesn't like to necessarily kill them in the media, but he can call a spade a spade at the end of the day as well. So um, there is a there's a fine line coaches have to draw, but I think to, a long-winded way of answering your question, Brendan, I think that is even more so than anything a, a coach's experience um, or anything that they bring to the table from a, from an X's and O's standpoint. Yeah, I'll add this too, like uh, just for context, like with Dave Yeager um, early in, in his first season, uh, Aaron Aflalo, um was playing so poorly on the defensive end that I actually called him a sieve in a piece. And, um, but the thing was that we had talked to Aaron Aflalo that that day that I wrote that piece and he admitted to being absolutely atrocious on the defensive end. He said, I don't know what's going on, but I'm playing really bad on the defensive end. So I call him a sieve. We get to the next practice the next day. And I actually, the media director pulled me aside and said, Hey, Dave wants to talk to you after the afterwards. I'm like, okay. So I went over to the side with Dave and Dave said, Hey, like, man, like a sieve, like, is, is a flalo a sieve? Is it, is it that bad? Like, that's pretty harsh, man. And I said, well, he admitted to it yesterday that he was been, he's been absolutely atrocious. I'm like, I can get you the quote. And he goes, okay, so he admitted that? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay. Well, look, I, I'm just looking out for my, my guy. Like, you can, you can critique him, but if you're going to call him, like, a sieve, that means he's, like, he's just letting everybody go right through him. And, and I'm like, okay. I'm like, as long as we're on the same page. So it was like that moment of account- accountability between all of us. And I thought that that was a good way for Dave to, number one, build relationships with media members, but also, like, uh, make sure that he's protecting his guys. And and so there was always uh, – what I liked about Dave is there was one voice at the top, but then all of his guys had individual voices. They were all just part – they weren't enablers – for the players they were certainly they all had a voice they all had a plan but they were fun to talk to they all had incredible basketball stories but at the end of the day when it came to why is this guy playing or this guy it was all about those are coaching decisions that those are dave's decisions and we're not going to question him we're going to support him in the way that we should and uh you know even guys like brian gates that weren't part of that like family they became family and, you know, Jason March and those guys, like, well, I think he was part of the family from, from Memphis when he came over. But, uh, yeah, I, I, like, there are a lot of different ways to do this. But what you can't have is player enablers. You can't have people who are going behind the coach's back and saying, yeah, man, you know, he's doing you wrong. Because they got family members that are doing that, and you got to cut that stuff out from that as well. Um, but you also have to have guys that uh, that can take the language or – like a coach can yell at a player and a player can he's making a mistake because he doesn't know why and he doesn't know why he's making the mistake or what exactly the mistake is so you need a player i mean a coach who after the head coach yells at him and screams at him and tells him this this and this can go over and like say now let's get on the floor and let's fix what just happened because i think you don't understand what you did wrong and i'm going to show you what you did wrong and this is how he wants it done you know, so so I think it's like this is a really cool discussion that I didn't expect us to have today to dive this deep into, like, how you build a staff. But because we're in Sacramento, and you know, this is what I think the ninth head coach I've had 
well, nine head coaches and probably 30-something assistants. Like, I'm somehow lot. on head coach three, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you're, da- you're Davion Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah. So, all right, let's skip ahead. Uh, like, sorry if we if we got too deep into discussion on, on coaches and everything else, but I, I do think it's a really cool discussion. Um, I'm not sorry. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> not sorry. Um, and, and I think it uh, it leads us to a different discussion we're not going to like stick on this for very long. We we talked about it. I talked about it on the radio yesterday. We talked about it on the pod for quite a bit. Uh, but the situation where um, Vivek has placed his daughter as um, the assistant general manager of the uh, the Stockton Kings, um, it's something that like we continue both uh, Sean and I, and, and maybe Brendan in his discussions as well. Um, we just continue to get this. Uh, this reaction from the outside and from the inside and from like all over the place. Sean, what do you got? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's always interesting with no, no matter what the Kings do, especially if it doesn't go over well um, from a media standpoint, because a lot of these things that happen um, tend to coincide with the Warriors playoffs and just a reminder. Yeah. So when, so when I, I mean, for people who don't know when the King season's over, um, we, we start covering the Warriors, uh, cause they're in the playoffs and it's still Northern California Bay area. And like it or not, Sacramento has a ton of Warriors fans and it's, you could almost argue that there's probably more Warrior fans in this, in this Sacramento, Stockton, Modesto, Yuba city, Vacaville area than you have in, in the, the than Kings fans, probably more Warrior fans at this point because of the success. And so, um, going down there for the past, I mean, there was no playoffs for the last two years for the Warriors, but going down there for all these NBA finals runs has, is is always interesting time because you see a lot of national media, you see a lot of folks from the Bay and yesterday was almost, um, the peak moment of, of this because it was just a day after uh, the hiring of Anjali Ranadive, who becomes the assistant GM for the Stockton Kings. And you would think that uh, I made the hire <laughs> because like every time I turn a corner and there's somebody I know, they're just like, <laughs> what? Like they're, they're looking at me. They're just, I'm the vent, like as if like I work for the organization or something. And I, you know, it's like, well, don't tell me, tell them like, I, you know, gosh, man, I'm just, I'm just, the messenger here i just reported the news you know i just know what um know what i know reported what i know and uh but it, it is funny because you'll just see like what are they thinking what is what what is what is what are they what are you guys doing in sacramento i'm like you guys first of all you guys check that i'm not i'm not you guys i am <laughs> i just covered the team for two decades so um it's uh it's pretty wild man it's not a it's not a move that has gone over well but if they wanted to make a splash the whole no, you know, no bad publicity or no, what is it? Bad publicity, still publicity, whatever. No, pu- it, it, no publicity is bad publicity. Right. Yeah, man. They, they're, they're definitely taking advantage of that. So, uh, it's still something that has this polarizing, uh, reaction among people. And, uh, it, is it polarizing? Has anybody felt I, good about it? No, pol- that's probably a, a, a good point, Brendan. Yeah, what it's do you probably mean? not polarizing. You know what I mean, like, hasn't everybody had the same the, reaction? No, polarizing in the sense that that it's definitely something that people react to, you know, and it's definitely like like it or not, you're being spoken about. It's not good. 
It's not you know the majority of it is not good, but you're being you're being talked about you know and then you get the fourth pick in the draft then you move up on the same day and get the fourth pick in the draft um and, i think and Brendan's the hiring... point is that that i don't think anyone has come out and thought this was a good idea like everyone is on one side of of this news a- am i yeah. wrong yeah yeah so i and i'll say i i think i got three things uh number one i like someone i i trust in the business um their text me was so disrespectful uh, because there are so many people who have worked their lives to try to get to that point, who have spent 10 years or, or five years working through film rooms and, you know, who have spent so much time trying to earn one of those positions. And just like, you know, a head coach in the NBA, there really are only like maybe not even maybe not even 20 assistant general manager positions at the G league level. Not every team has one. Uh, you know, every team has a GM of some sort, but um, so that was one thing. Uh, the second thing I was told by someone else was, uh, does anyone believe that that was Monty McNair's hire? Because if they think that was Monty McNair's hire, then, you know, they have some like property to sell them some oceanfront property in Arizona. They'd like to sell them. So that tells you that if Monty McNair didn't make this decision, that he, again, doesn't have authority to make those decisions in his own front office. Uh, so that's a problem. And uh, and outside of that, like, look, like, it, it's nepotism. It's everything else. It's just I think that it was handled poorly. Like, you could have done you could have gone a different direction where you wouldn't have had this type of like visceral reaction. You could have given her a position that did the same exact thing, but didn't feel the same way initially. And I, you know, I think Vivek has to have, um, you know, his, his succession plan in place, um, and succession plan in place, uh, like to what's going to happen next, like for him and his family. And I, you know, again, bringing your kids into the organization is like a time honored, uh, like thing that happens in the NBA, but I think there's a way to handle it. And this was just another moment where Vivek, um, brought bad publicity to himself and caused himself another self-inflicted wound. And that's what this is. It's self-inflicted. And it was the most obvious reaction. Like you have to have known that this is what was going to happen. You know, like there's already been a lot of talk about, I mean, coming right off the Mark Jackson and Mike Brown conversation of Vivek wants one and um, the idea being that the front office wants a different candidate and and kind of his meddling and it could have just changed the title so it doesn't sound as like assistant general manager has a weight to it. Um, Yeah, poor timing and you have to have known what was coming. I would say this if I was playing damage control over there and I was, yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I, I, for all we know, this may have been a situation that happens. But, I mean, James, if we had said, yeah, I mean, again, they haven't announced their staff. The team hasn't even officially announced it. Granted, she's got it on her bio uh, on her social media platforms. but um, And it's definitely true. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, what if would it make people feel better if they hired two assistant GMs and she's one of them? Would would it, you know, not to say they will, they probably won't. But if they did, and even if they don't, um, 
there's no, you know, I get it. Like to me, I get asked a lot because I'm trying to show kind of both sides of it, right? Where it's like you draw the picture of, yes, it's still just the G League and it's, you know, titles are what they are. They are important, but at the end of the day, like we've seen some pretty gnarly titles come out of the Sacramento Kings. So we kind of illustrate that as well. So even if she had a uh, the the responsibilities of an assistant head coach, but they called it something like director of engage basketball engagement, whatever the hell that was for uh, for Alvin Gentry, like does that lessen the blow? I almost I almost in this circumstance I almost feel better about the fact that you're saying that she's an assistant GM because she's going to be doing those duties. If you had said her function her job title is this but her function is what the assistant gm title uh, functions are it just has a different title to it do people feel differently so again like it's this back and forth is it an absurd hire probably i mean given the experience we get it and i feel james you're not the only one i I, i've shared some some messages that i was getting uh in responses that were just crazy And, and I understand those, you know, there's literally one that I can share here that said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it was that, that organization doesn't respect the jobs in of which we do shame on them. And I get it. Like I get it, but you know, it's almost, it's, it's a little bit indicative or excuse me. It's a little bit, it reminds me of Moneyball in a way where Billy Bean brings in Jonah, you know, who's playing basically Paul DePodesta, but in the movie, if you've seen it, Brad Pitt brings in Jonah Hill, and I've seen know. this one. Oh, thank God! I was about I to explain it to you. I don't believe you. <laughs> yes, yeah. The last couple and, months, but I saw it. Okay, did you? Hopefully, all in one sitting, if you could manage. Yes, um, actually, <laughs> yes. And you're looking at all those scouts around the room, and again, you know, it, it's I have that in my mind's eye where. You know, here here's this thing that, and again, it's not necessarily on that wavelength because this one is even worse than that because of the experience. So I get it, but do I, at the end of the day, do I credit him and her for putting themselves in this position? In a way, I do. I kind of admire it because, my God, man, you're going to go through. You had to know you're going to get a shitstorm coming your way, and and, and clearly gonna, you have. I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. I think he's oblivious. No, I don't. He's too smart I, I, to be oblivious. No. You can be brilliant and be oblivious. That's At this true. Point, everything leads me to believe that he is completely oblivious. James. That he, he has... thought that this could be some sort of win. No. Uh, no. Oh. And, I, and, and you know what? Hold on. Hold on. I actually agree with that part. I do. I agree with that part that he thinks it's going to be a win. I think he's going to... He, But I think he knows it's not going to be the popular decision. I think he knows... That he that he's going to be drugged through it. I just don't think he cares. Again, like he's oh he's, no, he's been he's been given the uh, if this was a movie if he was a director he's made movies that have been critically disasters. So he's already knows what that feels like. I think he feels the critics are going to hate this one, but it's going to be this this legacy move for me. You know, where at know. the end of the day, the audience will appreciate it, just to keep the analogy going. I think it's I, very I possible really that, like, when Kelsey Grammer came and sat next to him courtside, it was because <laughs> he saw a down periscope and had no idea that he was a critically acclaimed actor from, <laughs> from oh, Frasier and from Cheers. 
Like, I actually, at this point, believe. Look, here, I, I, again, I don't want to beat this one down again. I know. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. You had an opportunity for the messaging outside of the, the walls of Golden One Center to be very specific that Monty McNair was running the show, that Joe Dumars is gone, that you let him hire Mike Brown and not the guy that you preferred in Mark Jackson. You had this moment where you had this opportunity to say, I took a step back, I let the basketball people make the basketball moves, and if it works out, then I can be like, everyone can cheer for me and say, look, hands off and look what happened. Or if it doesn't work out, you can say, great, I got to fire another guy and now we're going to start over again. But at least I did it your way and I showed you that I tried it your way and it didn't work. So I'm going to go back to my way. This undermines all of that. It does. It just. And like- guess what? But guess what, James? Last I checked, Monty McNair still has his job as a general manager. Yeah. He, if he was really that up in arms about it, he could walk away. I know he's under contract, but Vivek would be like, hey, if you're not cool with this, great. There's the door. Well, and I, I also made the point, too, uh, on the radio yesterday when I was on with Kenny, um, very specifically, like, when you go into a season where you got what are called lame duck uh, general managers, right, if that's what happens, well, it's not like those guys, if they do turn this thing around, well, what if they don't want to come back because you wouldn't give them a contract? And all of a sudden, they can go get a better job, a better job that doesn't have 16 years of playoff drought and meddling ownership they can go get a job because they just showed that they can build a team out in sacramento but now you don't have them under contract because you wanted to make them prove it or something i'm not sure but if you prove it in sacramento you might be able to get a a much better job which i from my estimation they're like 29 of them that are better they're like like straight (laughs) up 29 of them are better but so, to that point, the lame duck thing does not bother me, especially when you're in the draft. The lame duck doesn't bother me. He's still got a. I think Monty McNair knows he still has to earn his contract. Now, I think he may think he already has. Don't get me wrong. I think he probably looks at what he's done as, yeah, but I feel still feel like he's on the clock. And again, I think the way the, the, the gig is positioned, when the end of the year happens, James, it's not like, okay, now we start negotiations. No, the end of the year is to get through the draft and into free agency. And once you put that to bed, then you worry about your general manager. Typically, that's how these things work. Sean, so, you had I, enough time to negotiate a contract for a new assistant general manager for the Stockton Kings. <laughs> but it hasn't been announced yet. You... Uh, but, she put it on her Twitter bio. She That's an did. announcement. She did. She you did. had enough time to do it. Have and, you seen and, a press release from the Sacramento Kings? And this I, is the guy who broke the story. So I, like, I haven't. Have you but, seen a? Yeah, I know. But I'll we know tell you this: I, I really do hope that someone is telling her that from here on out, you can't talk about other players on other teams because that is a violation it's... that will get your franchise fined and lose draft <laughs> picks. Can someone give her like the Magic Johnson? treatment like walk She'll, over the handbook yeah well that's up for them that's up for them to teach her but i will say this like the whole lame duck thing doesn't bother me and again to me it's a drop in the bucket uh picking up if you're picking up an option if there's one that exists or guaranteeing him another year whatever it is going to take 
uh, it's not like Monty McNair is among the highest paid general managers in the league. In fact, no. he's more towards the bottom. So it's not like, what are they really talking about? I don't feel Monty McNair is going into the draft and free agency and having to do his job and thinking to myself, man, I'm going to screw this team. <laughs> you know what? Like, or I'm going to do anything that's not going to position them to do the right thing. Like, that's absurd. And again, lame duck GM is not the same as lame duck coach. A coach has to have players believe in this system and the coach. If you're a lame duck, you're screwed. Like you, if you're a lame duck coach, you're screwed. When you're a lame duck GM, no one cares. No one cares. The organization is saying, do the right thing, earn your keep. I mean, I can't, there's a lot of things to fault the Kings. That one, I can't fault them, especially considering that I feel like that takes care of itself in August or September. They're not worried about it in May. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. And, and you know what? Monty McNair shouldn't worry about it in May either because he's got a draft to, 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 to worry about. He's paid to do a draft. Well, I don't think do he's it. worrying about it, but that's no. that's why you got the, you got your people. Oh, yeah, Brent, I, I think they're honest. Mike. What do you got for us, Brendan? I think there could <laughs> be an interesting aspect with the draft, though. Like, what if he, and I think we talked about this on 1320 yesterday a little bit, James, but, like, say that Monty McNair thinks that Shaden Sharp is that guy that he's going to be a future all-star. But the first two years of his career, he's probably not going to contribute all that much. So you're betting that at the end of this one season that people see the future with him, and it's like, okay, it was a good pick because he's going to end up working. But it's not like the but production that you're getting games. right now. Yeah, so like, does he feel comfortable enough to take the upside swing and maybe that's not the way that this franchise would go no matter what the more patient route but i i think not feeling like that's an option could be an issue i, and, I get you yeah and this is sacramento it's not necessarily entirely monty mcnair's call no so and it no, never I'm, has I'm been I'm like he can make the call he can be the guy but it's a think tank and it's again not unusual to sacramento but it's a think tank and it is what it is, man. These decisions are made. Your general manager. What did I? What did I say, James? Do you remember that? What I? What I equated general managers to? Uh, for most organizations in the NBA, especially well, especially in the NBA, but even in baseball at this at this juncture, even in football, you are middle management. It's it's middle management retail. You have a you have somebody who operates and is your mouthpiece, and we get all that. But you have other people that make decisions within the organization also. And a lot of times the room wins out. So um, they can say all the time, yeah, I've got I've got ultimate authority. You do. You've got authority to go out and make moves and to bring – but you still at the end of the day have to have them approved. You know, you have to have consensus. You have to have it's – a, it's, a, it's like a head coach. The head coach is the one making the shots, but your players are the one actually doing the job. So – you're positioning yourself to be effective and be this. I mean, everybody knows this is professional sports. It's not just one guy who's sitting there going, aha, and just pulling the trigger without sending it up through, hey, I'm going to do this. Are we good? We got the butt. You have to make sure all these things are checked. Yes. At the end of the day, though, it does fall on Monty McNair, and that is true. So interesting. <laughs> this, this has been a fun day because we haven't got sidetracked. We've just like elongated the conversations on each of these things, and and I think they're good conversations. And um, that brings us to our next topic, which is um, the Kings are looking at like four or five players that are going to be around that number four spot. 
Um, they're going to bring in a lot of people. The The NBA draft combine is going on right now. We're seeing, you know, Shaden Sharp came in at like 6'4 and a quarter uh, without shoes on with like a 6'11 and a half wingspan. So a little shorter than you thought, but, you know, close to 6'6 with shoes. Um, but the wingspan is crazy, almost seven foot. Um, but there's a group of players here that have like weird sort of ties or, or different things. Like, I think we've, we've transferred our, uh, our focus of the coaching search and especially delving deep into these young coaches that don't have like a huge track record, but have like little bits of information that you can crumbs that you can start to follow. Um, but some of these players have crumbs as well. And I, I think it's really cool to start like breaking down some of these things. Uh, I did look up uh, Paolo Bancaro's mom, uh, Rhonda Bancaro or Rhonda Bancaro Smith Bancaro played for the, the Monarchs in 2000. Um, she was a third, I think she was 14 overall, but the third round draft pick um, by, I think it was Jerry Reynolds. Um, she, she didn't last the, well, she lasted a year, but only played like nine games, played sparingly. Um, so there's a tie there. There's a bunch of ties, right, Brennan? There is. Um, I, I think that, you know, Bank Bancaro is a Seattle guy as well. Uh, Jaden Ivey is the one that has a lot of, um, interesting previous sports connections with his mom being the women's head coach at Notre Dame. She played in the WNBA. Um, his dad was on the 49ers as a wide receiver. Don't know exactly how much playing time he got, but on the 49ers as a wide receiver is still an accomplishment and you can see where he sort of gets the athleticism from. Um, yeah, and who knows if Boncaro has any sort of connections with uh, like Doug Christie. I know all the Northwest guys are all fairly close. Um, it, it's going to be an interesting situation for the Kings here at four. Yeah, I think that there's there's good stories too, right? Right. I mean, you skipped over the Jabari Smith Jr. I mean, Jabari was here. Sean, did you cover Jabari? I did. Jabari was great, man. He was he was great and great human being to be around he was fun I, I i i look for i haven't seen him since i covered him uh that i know of and so i am looking forward to crossing paths again with him one day to see if he actually remembers me that would be fun but yeah jabari was great a fun dude right mm-hmm. very fun vladi loved him vladi vladi leaned on him a lot vladi loved him how like explain that uh, so, you know, you get the, the practice players, you know, especially a guy like Jabari who didn't get into games very often. And I just remember always Vladi, my main man, Jabari, my main man, Jabari. Cause I mean, he'd kill him in practice. Right. But you, you, Vladi was the guy, the glue, try to bring in everybody together. Uh, Chris, Chris loved Jabari too. Webb loved Jabari. So there was, um, you know, you, you had a, you had a affinity for players like that who try to make you better. And, um, you know, Vladi let's be honest Jabari Smith trying to stop a even an an older Vladi Divots I mean he had every tool in the in you know in the tool shed so uh he can make a guy look silly at times so uh but Jabari definitely helped make those guys better he was uh he I think he he realized it and he was definitely not uh, the type of skill set that was long for the NBA but uh, he was very very well liked among the teammates for sure yeah, it seems interesting that, you know, again, I, we're going to get deeper and deeper into these players as we go, we get closer to the draft. Um, and, you know, each of them are going to tell a story. Uh, and we kind of did a, like what we would do like first day, 
like on Tuesday, late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, right? When we had the live pod, um, where we talked about, uh, whether you would, what you would do with a pick. But, uh, I think we, we should probably get into it a little bit more with the business of basketball. <laughs> uh, there we go. Um, like we, we've got the three options, right? You got You can trade up, you can trade out, you can trade down. Uh, and I guess the fourth pick is you can make the selection at four. Um, I don't know. Where do you think the Kings are leading, leaning? And, you know, I guess we start here. Brendan, do you think there's any way they move up? I mean, I think it's possible. You know, I don't know that I'd say it's likely, but I think that if the idea is that the timeline is making something happen right now and they really believe in one of these top prospects as being a premier fit alongside Fox and Sabonis, that maybe you do include next year's pick and do something like you saw Dallas do to move up for Luka Doncic, like when they absolutely just buy a prospect. And if you think that he's going to be, I mean, when are you going to be in another scenario where you're this close to if you believe that one of those prospects is like franchise altering, when's the next time the Kings are going to be in this sort of position? Um, So I think it depends on how they value those guys, but I I totally think it's in the cards. Interesting. Sean, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't bet on it. (laughs) I just think it's unlikely. Um, I think, you know, I think it's so early on still, um, we haven't heard a lot of chatter yet, but I will. I, I just think that the team probably knows how one through four is going to shake out. And if there's any variation to that and, and you want to draft the, the pick, then I think you're going to be comfortable with most one through four. Um, that said, like, I don't know that I don't, you know, I don't know where they're pegging one through four. I don't know, kind of know what their orders looking like and, and what they think yet. So, um, but I feel like you have to do your due diligence both ways. You're in the combine. You're going you're gonna to act as if you're you're going forward and drafting number four no matter what shakes out, and you're going to put your list together. But at the same time, you're going to explore all options, so you're not going to leave any stone unturned. You're going to know what the value of your pick is for your organization and what your assets are and what you can get, and then see if anything changes from week to week um, or even in the days leading up to the draft. So... When they go into the draft, they're going to know the value of that pick, and they're going to know who they're comfortable in picking. So moving up is the one that I think is probably the most unlikely. I think moving down, moving out, and then drafting the pick, uh, if you had to rank it, I'm not sure where that ranks yet, but I think all those three scenarios would be more likely. It's interesting because I hadn't really considered it, but then if you do look at the way that that whole scenario turned out, what did Dallas end up giving up? The tenth, The number 10 pick? I believe it ended up being Cam Reddish and Trey Young. Okay, yeah, and Cam Reddish is the tenth pick. Um, I'm I'm almost positive. Uh, so, I think the Kings would be thinking, like, if you do, if you did something like that, because I I, I wouldn't have considered it like giving up. But if you say like we'll give you a top ten protected pick next year in the 2023 draft, and and if not a top eight protected in 2024. Um, I think that's interesting because your hope is that you do make the playoffs, right? And so it wouldn't be a lottery pick. It would be like a 14, 15, 16 pick. And 
if you're getting the right player, if you do believe that there's a star there that you're going to get that's a perfect fit, I think you probably do have to look at it and at least consider and kick the tires on it because if you're talking about, you know, middle of the the first round pick giving up for it, like in theory, uh, then it probably would make sense as long as you're protected in some way, like, again, a top 10, top 12, whatever it would be. Um, so that's, that's interesting. It, it uh, is, it is, by the way, you know, with all those playoff hopes, it's just hard to imagine the team taking a dramatic step without moving, <clears throat> excuse me, without moving a draft pick, right? Like it's, it's really hard to see them do anything of substance and adding a player. I mean, I give them credit for what they did with Sabonis because now granted you moved Halliburton to do that. So I guess you could kind of call him, but not really. I mean, not still, really. Yeah, not really. He's already two years in the league at that point. But I just really don't feel like you can add somebody like that, that you the, the type of player you'd like to add without moving a pick. It doesn't have to be this pick. It doesn't have to be number four. I think number four just, you know, as you mentioned, James, gets you into some rooms that you probably weren't able to get into before. You're in conversations that maybe you weren't able to navigate once before because you didn't have such a high draft pick. Um, but at the same time, like, I feel like it's really difficult to add the type the, a player of the type of ilk that they'd like to without moving one of these draft picks. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a really interesting discussion. Like there are certain players that I would like a baseline, like, and I'm not even sure if you have the number four pick, would you, would you trade the number four pick for John Collins and cap filler? It's tough. I'd Probably at very not. least want 16 back also, but yeah, you'd have, like Brennan said, you'd have to get pretty creative, but if we're talking straight up, I don't know. Probably not. Okay. What if I gave you another one? What if I said, uh, the number four pick, um, Harrison Barnes and cap filler for John Collins, number 16 and Kevin Herter. I, I struggle when you're losing Barnes. If you can get it done without Barnes and move Holmes to a third team, because I know Holmes is not the most intriguing candidate for Atlanta with their center situation, but like, it's hard for me if you're making like a win now move and you're moving one of your actual starting caliber players when you don't have very many. But you would be gaining two starting level players and the 16th pick in the draft where you could still draft a young player yeah i'd have to you'd have to really consider it i think uh, you know because I, I think atlanta atlanta is one we're going to keep circling because uh, like i keep hearing that atlanta's intrigued with um moving off of john collins contract they're yeah. they're concerned about his contract pretty heavily um and they also would uh more than listen on on herder at this point well and herder doesn't have yeah herder is a little bit more but it i mean he's signed for pretty long term as well through 25 26 as well so yeah talking four-year deal and i mean it's like it's reasonable right it's like 13 14 15 yeah it's yeah it caps out at 17 at the final year so um whereas john collins is into the 20s and mid 20s you're getting you're 23 25 26 27 um, I do wonder though. I mean, that's a lot of salary to bring back, and I mean, at what point does that hurt you with Sabonis? Uh, at what point does that hurt? I mean, you already have a pretty max player with with Fox. I know 
um, you know, someone like Sabonis has to. I mean, he, when he tests free agency, it's going to be unrestricted. Yeah, right, James. So yeah. Well, Sabonis is going. Yeah, Sabonis is going to be an interesting situation because he can take an extension next year, and I'll get into the whole numbers. I'll break all of them down here in the next couple of days, I guess. But the um, likelihood of him doing that is like none, right? Like he's going to go unrestricted because he can make entirely more money oh no he can make way more money but again we're we're gonna keep coming to the question is he a max level player like what level uh like contract is he and you know i i do think he's gonna make a lot of money uh, but i need to do all the math on what exactly he can get if he opts out next year versus the following year and it's substantial i mean it's a, right. a tremendous amount of money but again just because you can make you know, $32 million a year doesn't mean you will make $32 million a year. And so you can think that Sabonis would make something like that. But at the same time, there has to be someone else who's willing to pay that. And you're always going to have Larry Bird rights to him. So you can, you have the ability to pay him more than anyone else does. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's where I get into it for me. It's like when you ask that trade, the Sabonis thing is in the back of my head. So if I'm bringing on two players like that in this trade scenario, I'm probably less apt to do it. Yeah, but the cap is going to go up to uh, that's going to go up to 120, and then by the time you're paying Sabonis, it's it's going to be like a I think it's 132. So there's going to be a lot more money there, uh, and so I, I think that that's a good thing. You're going to see the cap go up, and Fox's contract goes up, but uh, you know it makes you take a more like conservative approach with a guy like Divincenzo. Um, and then you would still have Rashawn Holmes to go out and trade to go get another piece, if that made sense. So, you know, you can flip him again and, and see if you can find someone who fits a role better, and, and then you'll still have your mid-level and all that stuff. So I think you can do it. Uh, you're just going to tie up some of your money long-term, and, but some of those contracts are reasonable. Like if John Collins is the 20 and 10 guy that he was three years ago. I mean, he's only 24 years old. If he's a 20 and 10 guy, then his contract is totally reasonable. It's just, if he's a 16 and eight guy, then maybe it's not. So can he be a, your legitimate number two scorer with uh Sabonis being your third scorer, but your hub and Fox being your number one. So I don't know. It's intriguing, right? It, it very much is. And I love Collins. I think Collins would be a great King. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think an interesting scenario for me would be that they actually like make the pick at four. Say it's Jaden Ivey or, or Shaden Sharp, a guy that's going to take a little bit more time. But then you go out and move Holmes in the next year's first round pick, top six protected or so, for a guy that can contribute right now and allows you to just be a little bit more patient with whatever draft pick you bring in because yeah. they're not going to have immediate contribution. And I think that needs to be accepted. Like some guys will. But I, I think it's easier if you go into it assuming that you're probably not going to get somebody that's altering the direction of the of the franchise or the season just going into next year. But then you go get somebody that can be a little bit more short term and and be more patient with the draft pick that they bring in. I've got some weird stats that someone gave me. Um, the number one, the number four pick has a starter quality player forty percent of the time compared to 25 to 30% for the 7 through 9. So if you look at the 7 through 9 as like where the Kings probably should have been, uh, 7, 8, 9 is kind of, they, the odds were much higher. Um, the fourth pick has generated about one to two more wins per season as compared to pick 7 through 9. Um, 
while picking a star level of player is unlikely. It happens about 20% of the time at number four compared to 15, uh, 10 to 15% and seven through nine. Um, and, you know, recent examples of the number four pick, uh, Scotty Barnes, Patrick Williams, Andre Hunter, and Jaron Jackson Jr. Anything Solid. intriguing there? Yeah. I would take every single one of those players. <laughs> yeah, most of them are most of them pretty good right there. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think Hunter, they really like Hunter in Atlanta, and that's probably why they're moving to will move off Collins. And, of course, they have massive salary cap si- situation that's brewing. And so, like, I'm, I'm more likely to trade Harrison Barnes now than at any other time because Harrison Barnes is under contract for $18.6 million, and then he's a free agent unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. And I think like, as of right now, you're going to have a tough time retaining Harrison Barnes. Um, so if I'm the Kings, I definitely would consider him as not an expiring contract, but as a piece that can go get me something else. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely does. Didn't consider him expiring. Yeah. Makes yeah. Sense. So, and I mean, there's value in that. So uh, if you were making a deal with Atlanta, Sure, you would like to, you know, even if you give up Holmes in that deal, Holmes and Barnes for Herter and and uh, and Collins and swapping picks or giving up a future pick, so that makes a lot of sense because then you're dumping a ten million dollar long term contract, eleven, twelve, uh, and you're taking back Herter's contract, and so you're taking on some money, but not nearly as much as you were before, and so you would be taking on a lot for Collins after year one, um, but you know you also have $70 million in cap space next season where, you know, you eat up that space now. So I, I think these are all interesting ways that we can do it. So, so again, like I'll just go around, uh, Brendan trade up, trade down, trade out, make the pick. Probably trade out for me. So we're, we're forecasting what the team will do or what we would do. We see that's good. Why don't you give me both? Why don't you pound sand? No, let me give both of mine (laughs) real quick. Then my forecasting is trade out. I probably would keep the pick. If, if you were, if you had the GM job for more than a year. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Exactly. So then these are the questions that, okay. So if you're keep, if you're keeping the pick, then is that based on who you think is available there? Yeah. I mean, I have four different guys that, and I you're like, comfortable so. with all four, so that means you would just take it, right? I'd very much prefer one of the top three, but if Jaden Ivey's there, I've right. I believe in Jaden Ivey. Yeah, uh, I think the team is likely to trade. I don't know if it's this pick or if it's future. Um, I think they're likely to trade. So I guess I will go that way. If it's me, I'm likely to trade as well, but I need to know what the market is, so I need to know what I'm getting. Um, are you trading down or are you trading? Do you think the Kings will trade down or do you think they'll trade out? Oh, that's that. I, I mean, this is, this is silly at this point. Like, I don't know. I honestly have no idea. Uh, I, to, to answer your silly question, James, I'll say they're trading out. Um, okay. I think they'll trade out. So I, whatever. I don't know that that's speculative, but, uh, and then, yeah, if it's it, what, what, what I would do, I would probably look to move it because I feel like moving it, um again i told you there's only one one guy that i feel 
I would that, that maybe two that that I would be over the moon about, and everyone else I just kind of have some questions and don't really love. So um, I'm going to be looking very very hard to try to move the pick if it were me. I don't know what I'm getting with that pick yet. So if it gets if I don't like any of the things that I'm getting, then yeah, I feel very comfortable in making the selection. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just end it there. <laughs> okay. What do you <laughs> want? Now? Hold on. How hold dare on. you? <laughs> Answer your um, silly question, James. Yeah, played hopscotch over this. <laughs> I think the Kings will trade down and then possibly trade out once they trade down, but trade down and then trade out if that's a possibility. James so, chose chaos. James told, uh, chose all I, of the above. <laughs> I, I chose chaos, and how I mean that is because I it's think the Kings. No, I think if you're sitting at four and the Pistons fall in love, it, it, let's just say Paolo Bancaro falls to number five uh, to number four, and the Pistons are like, "Look, we'll give you Sadiq Bay and something future, and we'll go from four to from five to four. Then I take it. And then if I'm at five, then I'm looking at like maybe I work something out with a Collins deal. And and I feel more comfortable because now I don't just have, you know, now I've already got my replacement in place for Harrison Barnes if I do trade him, and I and I'm getting a shooter and I'm getting a guy like Collins. So so I would like try to manipulate. I think you could move down a couple of times in this draft and pick up assets like rotational players. I think if you went just for like again the chaos theory, if I'm at and and we have this situation where a good player falls but you're not really interested in him and you can give up you can take in a player like Sadiq Bey now am I, if I'm at number 5 would I trade number 5 for number 10 in Kyle Kuzma and, and hey in that deal give up Rashawn Holmes okay so now I've still got a top 10 pick but I've picked up Sadiq Bey and I've picked up Kyle Kuzma and I've balanced my roster now I feel like I can ch- take all kinds of players at, at number 10 that can fit a need or fit whatever, or I can trade out there and not worry about taking back a pick from Atlanta and try to make this swing a big deal. So again, like I think that there's a lot of ways that the Kings can improve themselves greatly. Maybe they tie up some cap space, but at the same time, I think that they can improve themselves greatly with a series of moves. Your theory crafting is phenomenal. I also realized that we've done this too long now because not just today, uh, but this past almost uh, what not even a year of doing the Kings beat. James loves him some Sadiq Bay. Um, Drop sixty, comes, come on. Comes back to Sadiq Bay a lot. <laughs> Jeremy Grant, we hear him a lot. James, well, those are James available is, players. Uh, av- well, and I've never every, loved. I've never available, loved Jeremy James. Grant. Everyone's available. We're all available. We're Let's all see. Available. November, December, January, February, March, April, yeah, I need a, May. I'll take a shot every time I hear Sadiq Bay. <laughs> seven. Seven months of the King's Beat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, seven Where's months it, of the King's Beat. When's our anniversary? Beat. What do we do? Uh, I don't know. Like, the anniversary is late October. It's like... Uh, How about that? Yeah, it's like the last couple of days of October is when we kicked off the King's Beat. Uh, yeah, I, like, uh, there's all kinds of options here, and... Again, I, I think Sadiq Bay just because he fit, he checks all the boxes. Like he's young, he hits threes, he plays defense, um, he's a role player, all those boxes. So, 
I'm just saying. I, I, I don't think he's going to be a star. I, I, I do that to tease, not to criticize. I, oh. I, I'd be more than happy with Sadiq Bey on the game. That's right. All right, do we have any final thoughts? Brenna, you got anything? There's something about no. Mary. Like, yeah, I'll finish the second half today. No, no, you know what you're going to do? What, what else do you have to do today, Brendan? You know I what you need to do? Two other just, podcast recordings. You need to start over. Start the movie <laughs> over and just watch it. That's doing it true justice. The Farrelly brothers will thank you. That's sure. right. They, sure. The guys in the tree playing the guitar will thank you. What's next? Yeah, what so are these at, songs? Yeah. What, what, what is next after uh, something about Mary? Swingers. You haven't seen Swingers. Tell me. I say you, have to watch, you have to watch Swingers. Yeah. Make sure it's the John Favreau Vince. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Make sure it's the yeah. John Favreau Vince Vaughn Swingers or else you're watching something completely different, pal. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I just realized that uh, his buddy that is – what is he? Is he a dentist in the in the end uh but his buddy who's his high school buddy and then his buddy later that says he ran into mary at uh that's how it's like starts him off right oh you're back to something about mary yeah yeah that is actually chris uh, elliott right well no chris elliott is is woogie <laughs> that's right uh no no the buddy though in the early years he has long hair in the later years he has he's bald he was uh in sex in the city and he just passed away Oh, sad am news. I wrong? I don't know. I can't. I can't picture that person. It's been uh, a while since I've seen you. the movie. What's that? It's been a while since I've you. seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, maybe. I, maybe I'm off there. But uh, yeah. A- anyway, uh, spectacular movie, and we'll keep feeding you more uh, movie <laughs> stuff. Now he can catch up with all of our movie lines. That he. Well, I mean, that's no. The thing I don't know. Can... It's going to take a long time. It is. Yeah. He likes build. to watch movies in 15-minute increments. Well. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the Kingspeed Podcast. Um, again, we made the big announcement at the beginning of the show. Gary Gerald will be on the Kingspeed Happy Hour on May 26th from 530 to 7.30. Uh, that should be an absolutely tremendous event uh, of course, it is Off the Record with the King's Beat, Virtual Happy Hour, Part 6, The Voice. <laughs> uh, so moving from left to right on your dial, The Voice. Um, and we'll talk about lead changes and, uh, you yeah, know, stops some pops. Uh, he's got so the bucket. He's got the bucket. G-Man uh, needed to be like a spokesman for KFC. Oh, there you go. And I mean, Rayleigh's, that's what he was, like the the produce man for Rayleigh's. I I grew up watching him uh, as a produce man. Um, Sweet. Uh, Okay, so yeah, again, uh, make sure you're jumping on board with the King's Beat. Uh, Premium subscribers are the only ones who get the link to the happy hour, which are a lot of fun. We get a little drunk. Uh, Well, not drunk, but like uh, some of us, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I actually have a a King's Beat happy hour t-shirt coming out soon. Uh, so that will be fun as well. Um, and uh, make sure if you're still watching on YouTube, give us a thumbs up, give us a subscribe, uh, and you know we'll be back next week. So for Fox 40s, boom, Sean boom, Cunningham, boom. and uh, Brendan Nunes from the King's Pulse podcast and, of course, the King's Herald, uh, I am James Ham, your King's Insider for ESPN 1320 and the King's Beat. We will see you next week.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.